Um, it's good to see Narell, hopefully. Yeah, young adults went axe throwing at Narell's repeated requests. And it's good to see at least, hey, well, hopefully you didn't take anyone out. Yeah, they haven't caught you if you did last night. Um, tonight, like Mike said, we unpack 1 Corinthians 8. But let me start by asking you, hey, didn't you just totally hate it? the other day um, when there was so much snow falling that we couldn't even open our front doors and we were snowed inside. Um, that was so frustrating, wasn't it? What about when there were cows on Mitcham Road that held up traffic for three and a half hours and we just had to sit there and couldn't get through? How frustrating was that? Uh, well, reality is these two things didn't happen. Well, they did, just not in Australia. Uh, you weren't frustrated at cows, at least to my knowledge, there weren't cows stuck in Mitcham Road um, yesterday holding up traffic. And if there were, I guarantee they would not have been treated with the same respect as what they are in India. Um, but uh, they didn't happen here. You weren't frustrated at these things, uh, but they did happen. We live out here in the West. And these issues aren't ones that readily influence us. But there's real people in different parts of the world that these do influence day in, day out. Now, that's how it works, right? Different people living in different parts of the world encounter different issues, different circumstances, different things to work through. And that can be the same for Christians as well. There are specific issues that Christians face in different parts of the world that don't have the same influence or uh, hit us with the same severity as what it does for them. And likewise, we have things as Christians that hit us that aren't as seemingly relevant to them in different parts of the world. And that's what we encounter tonight in our passage. In chapter 8, the Apostle Paul that um, Mike has read out for us tackles an issue through idolatrous food that at least on a surface level, just a glance over, on a surface level reading, doesn't seem that familiar to us, doesn't seem necessarily that relevant to us. Um, but as we're about to discover, this passage should most definitely challenge each and every one of us in a number of different ways. So let me pray, and then we'll have a look at what Paul has going on in chapter 8. Oh, Father God, thank you for who you are and all you've done for us. Thank you for your word, the Bible, and the gift of freedom. We have to freely open it tonight, Lord, just through your Holy Spirit. Uh, reveal more to us of who you are. Reveal more to us of who we are. Reveal more to us of how offensive sin is towards you and our great need for a Savior that you have already provided for each and every one of us in your beautiful Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. If you've got your Bible, turn, or hopefully you've still got it open, turn to 1 Corinthians 8, and that's what we're working through tonight. At the beginning of chapter 7, we, we spoke about how the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians changes his focus. The first six chapters, he's spent addressing um, the issues going on in the Corinthian church. He's had a verbal report about their pro or lack of progress and, and some of the concerning things that are going on, and he spends the first six chapters uh, addressing that. And then in chapter 7, he, he turns his attention to actually addressing the questions and concerns that they have written to him, asking about. So they've written a letter to Paul, asking for some clarification on things, some, um, for him to unpack some issues that they are facing as Christians, as new believers, they're not sure what is going on about. And, and that's what we get tonight. Uh, the first two questions that 
they asked of Paul was around marriage and, and singleness. We've addressed them. They're, they're pretty familiar issues to us out here in the West. But tonight, their third question that they ask him is around idolatrous food. Now, food's pretty big in the majority of cultures. Even out here in the West, if we want to invite someone around for a meal, uh, we meet people at cafes for lunch, for food, grand final day is coming up, there will be a lot of meat pies to go along with that. Like food is, yeah, and I'm very glad Pastor Andrew's not here because no one but a Collingwood supporter wants Collingwood to get in. Uh, Mike Ford, sorry, you are one. <laughs> um, yeah, how are you on church cancer? Anyway, uh, <laughs> that's sorry. Anyway, food is a big part of our culture out here, but it is also a really big part of cultures all over the world in different ways. And in many different cultures, for Christians, food raises a number of questions or concerns especially in parts of the world where the local religion uh, enforces dietary requirements on people there. We don't really hit those issues here. majority of people out here eat whatever they want and they're fine to do that. Although we might occasionally wonder about halal meat or something similar, on a whole, uh, unless you're hiding something from me, these aren't the sorts of issues that are at the forefront of our minds. But in first century, this was absolutely a live issue for the majority of Christians. And these Corinthian believers, well, they're wrestling with that. They're wrestling with a bunch of questions surrounding a Christian's food intake. Could a Christian eat meat? Could a Christian eat meat that the Old Testament law has prohibited as unclean? Could Jewish Christians eat with Gentile Christians? Could Christians eat food that have been sacrificed to idols? Well, that's what we touch on tonight. Could they do so if that meal was held in the temple? Uh, is it any different if that meal's held in someone's private home? What if they eat that meal in private by themselves? Or what if they're sharing that meal with someone else? What if they just bought that meat from the marketplace? And so they're asking, like, well, can we eat it? These are the sorts of questions that they're seeking answers to surrounding food and Christianity, and that's what Paul begins to give his response to tonight in chapter 8, and he continues through 9 and 10 in addressing some of these concerns. So let's read 1 Corinthians 8, 1 to 6. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God." There is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So in Roman Corinth, as in much of the Mediterranean, uh, pagan worship very often uh, involves sacrificing an animal. 
And what would happen is you'd go to make a sacrifice to a god, to an idol. So you'd sacrifice an animal. Part of that meat would be what the sacrifice is to that idol. Uh, another part, the priest would come in and take their share. They're just they're kicking. Um, and then what was left, often the person making the sacrifice would host a banquet or a feast with the rest of that meat, hold it in the temple as a continual worship service to the idol. Or they would take the rest of that meat home, they would host a banquet as a worshipful meal towards that idol and and have people around to their home. Uh, Or sometimes they would take what was left over of that meat, take it to the market and just sell it for people to buy and take home and do with what they will. So the Corinthians question is simply, hey, as Christians, can we eat? As a big, massive social activity that this was. Can we engage in these meals when we're invited to it? Can we eat this sacrificial meat? If I just go to the marketplace and happen to buy meat that has been offered to an idol, can I eat it as a Christian? And Paul's answer across chapters 8 to 10 is essentially, yes, sort of, but, and then he'll come to a no in chapter 10. But his main thing is that, yes, but it totally depends on the context. For Paul, the food itself is not the issue. The issue is the content and context of the meal that surrounds it. There's nothing for Paul that is special, that magically happens to the animal that's been sacrificed. Now, one commentator put it, hey, Paul's issue is not with the menu, it's with the venue, or something around that is how they worded it. But um, Because that's his thing. Paul's issue is not with the food in and of itself, but with the context that surrounds the meal around it. And so this is what the Christians in Corinth are wrestling with. And so they ask Paul for some clarity because they're clearly at least in two main groups here. One group that is massively against it and abstains and will not touch idol food and tells everyone else that they shouldn't touch it either. And one group that says, hey, there's actually no problem with it. And Christians are absolutely free to eat this food. And their main argument for those that are keen to eat the food actually makes a lot of sense. And it's what we've read in these verses. Their main argument surrounds the knowledge that they talk about here. They say, hey, we all possess knowledge. Knowledge including that we know that these idols aren't actually real. Uh, We know that there's only one God and one Lord in Jesus Christ. And so if these idols are nothing, then there's no issue with me eating food that's might mean something to someone else, but I know the truth. Therefore, it's fine for me to eat that. We know there's only one God, and so eating this idol food, there's no issue with it. And it's a pretty strong argument, and it makes a lot of sense, and there's a lot of truth in it. But Paul, in his wisdom, comes in and gives us sort of some, yeah, there's some merit in what you're saying, but you need to keep this, this, and this in mind. He's essentially saying, yes, we've got this knowledge, but knowledge in and of itself, well, it puffs up, whereas love builds up. Knowledge in and of itself makes our heads and our egos grow, whereas love for one another builds up the people of God, our brothers and sisters. And he's saying, if you're so obsessed with knowing then you might actually not know anything at all. 
If you are so obsessed with your freedom, with your right, with this knowledge in and of itself, then you're missing out on the greatest, the most vital piece of knowledge that there is. And that's where he says loving God, on the other hand. Loving God leads you to the greatest, best sort of knowing we can possibly experience, and that is the fact that we are known by God. So Paul knows that, hey, there's a lot of merit in this argument, and they're right. Idols don't exist. They're not real. There is one God. But the problem is, as he goes on to say in verses 7 and 8, not everyone knows this. Not everyone is at a point in their faith where they know this. Let's read 7 and 8. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and we're no better off if we do. So his point is that some people, having lived their entire lives surrounded by idols, they still associate this sacrificial food with the God or with the idol to whom it's been offered. Maybe some of these converts he's talking about have just converted from whatever religion they're currently offering this sacrificial food to. And for many of these people, their consciences are more sensitive to what's happening and their experience is different. And they might well experience the food as defiled. For them, the idol food is a reminder, is a tie. It might even be a temptation to return to a former life where they did not worship Jesus Christ. And therefore, for them, they experience the food as defiled. And so given this, and given the fact that Paul goes on to say that, hey, food actually doesn't matter. If we eat it, we're no better off. If we abstain from it, like, that's fine too. If abstaining doesn't hinder us in our walk with God, well, let's at least be really careful about going around and flaunting our freedom to eat whatever we decide we're free to eat. And so even though we might feel as a Christian that we might be at a place in our faith where we go, hey, hey, we know these idols aren't real. I'm not viewing this meal as any form of worship experience. Therefore, I'm free to eat this food. Say, hey, be very careful about flaunting your freedom to eat the meat. We are called to be sensible in the midst of of our freedom and to understand the context and the situations that surround us. Now, we might, we'll go on to some more examples in a minute, but we, we might not experience this situation around food. Maybe some of us do. Maybe some of us have um, friends that have converted from other religions, and this absolutely is something that we've experienced. Uh, maybe something's different. Uh, to me, alcohol is an easy one to jump to. In that, in and of itself, in a certain context. I don't believe the Bible says, hey, it is wrong for a Christian to um, taste one drop of alcohol in their life. Uh, In the right context, in and of itself, there is nothing wrong with alcohol, but in a different context, it can absolutely be 
the wrong thing to do and a sinful thing to do. I've got plenty of friends who like the food for these guys and girls in the passage tonight, who alcohol to them is a link, is a reminder, is a temptation to return to a former way of life that they do not want to live anymore. And so for someone to sit down and have a glass of wine over a meal at the end of the day with their wife or whatever it may be might be fine in that context, but to drink with someone who alcohol is an issue for, it is absolutely wrong and absolutely sinful. And so just because we are free or have the right to do something doesn't mean we have the freedom to do it in every context or in every circumstance. Just because we have the freedom to do something doesn't mean we have the freedom to do it across all circumstances. Verses 9 to 13. Paul goes on to tell us why. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and sisters and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother or sister stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make them stumble. So the Corinthians, they may or may not, Paul hasn't give them, given them a concrete answer yet. They may or may not have the freedom to eat this idol food, and that's a question he returns to in chapter 10. But one thing they absolutely must not do is to exercise their freedom in such a way that it destroys the faith of their brothers and sisters around them. Now, destroy sounds like a pretty heavy, full-on term, but... Uh, it can actually be that serious. Here in our passage, their dinner, what they eat, actually has the capacity to be a stumbling block for believers who might witness them engaging in a meal like this. Paul even gives us a picture of what this could look like. He says, hey, imagine that one of your brothers and sisters sees you, one of the mature Christians, one of the knowers, one of the people with this amazing knowledge that you've spoken about, lounging around in a pagan temple, Involving uh, participating in a worship feast and eating this sacrificial food. What might they conclude? To you, yep, you're over here, you've got this knowledge, yep, it's not at all worshipful for me, in and of itself the food's fine, you're this. But what about those who surround you? What about those who see you, who witness you doing this? What conclusion could they come to? Who might not be at the same strong point in their faith? They might conclude that, hey, actually it's fine for us to eat idol food as well. But what if this person has just recently converted from worshipping these same idols last week? To them, the idol food is still linked to an act of worship. Or they might even conclude, hey, so-and-so's over here doing it, therefore maybe, maybe this is actually compatible with Christianity. Maybe I can continue to serve those idols but worship Jesus at the same time. Maybe you don't know what conclusions they're going to come to. But they could be catastrophic. And in this instance, Paul's saying that, hey, for then, if that was to happen, for the sake 
of a nice meal out, you have destroyed a brother or sister's faith. And in doing so, you haven't just sinned against them, you've sinned against the God who died for them. You've sinned against Jesus Christ. Now, while eating certain food in such a way that's part of a pagan worship experience isn't something that we regularly wrestle with out here in Mitcham in the West, but we can absolutely think of other examples. We can absolutely think of other things that we as Christians might do or might engage in that have the potential to be a stumbling block to the people around us. Drinking alcohol, we've touched on. Drinking it with certain people or in a different context could absolutely be a stumbling block to others. The food we eat might, if we've got friends from different cultures and different religions, could be a stumbling block. The way we spend our money, the language we use, the content of our conversations, the jokes that come out of our mouth, the video games we play, the way we dress, the, the TV shows and movies that we watch. All of these things have the capacity to lead others away from Christ by tempting them to violate their own consciences. Oh, Pastor Paul watches Game of Thrones, full of violence and nudity, but if Paul does it, well, it must be fine for a Christian. That show must be glorifying to God and okay for someone to watch. Sorry to anyone that watches that. I'm not trying to pick on you. Although maybe we need a series on our media intake and how we're called to do all things for the glory of Christ. And that also means what we watch on TV. Um, Anyway, Uh, Paul does that. It must be fine. So-and-so uses, oh, you should have heard the jokes. Mike was telling after church on Sunday morning. Um, I have. And they're bad for not a reason of being sinful. They're just dad jokes. Um, But... um, so-and-so speaks like this, it must be fine. What are the things you do in your life that could possibly be a stumbling block to those around you? Now, some of these things might be a stumbling block for two main reasons. One, like we've covered with the idol food in and of itself, in the right context, we might be totally free as a Christian, to engage in it, but there's plenty of other contexts where it could be a stumbling block for people. Well, the other side, the reason they could be a stumbling block for people are because deep down we actually know they're not good for us to be doing either. Deep down we, we know these are sinful for us to be engaging in and they're not glorifying and honouring to God. Uh, but we want to do them anyway, so we just numb our conscience and keep doing it. And, uh, but deep down we know this isn't honouring to God, how I speak to this person, how I engage with them, uh, the things I'm spending my money, uh, whatever, insert whatever. It's not necessarily just the context. It might actually start with, hey, Paul, I know that's actually wrong. I'm just choosing to do it anyway. And if it's wrong for me, of course, it's going to be a stumbling block for others. Certain movies, video games, dressing in certain ways, whatever it is for you. But like I said, many of these things... Um, can be right in and of themselves, and Christians might absolutely be free to engage in them. Mike and Mike come up, I'm almost done. But as Christians, like Paul writing to these Corinthians, we are first and foremostly called to be sensible in the midst of our freedom. 
and we holding on to our rights or holding on to our freedoms at the expense of making someone else stumble is not on. That's sinful, not just against the brother or sister that we sin against, but against God. Paul closes in verse 13. He says, therefore, hey, if what I eat is making someone stumble, I'm not going to eat it anymore. That needs to be our attitude. Now, you might be sitting here going, oh, yeah, but Paul, that means I can't watch this, do this, this, this. Well, so be it. If that's what the Bible's saying and that's what your conscience is saying, just because we don't like how it is doesn't mean that's not God's standards and how it is. But this needs to be our attitude. If what I'm doing is making someone stumble, let's not do it. We as Christians have been blessed with freedom to enjoy things in this world that God has given us, but we are to be sensible with that freedom. And if for whatever reason, something we are doing has the potential to make someone stumble, then we're called not to do it. We're free to be sensible in our love for one another needs to outweigh our freedom or our rights that we hold so tightly at times. Because after all, like, like we spoke about, our knowledge in and of itself and our freedoms in and of itself, well, that can build up our egos, can build up our heads, but it is love for the people around us that truly builds up the people of God. Let me pray. Well, Father God, thank you so much for who you are and all you've graciously done for us. Thank you for Corinthians 8 and the hard challenge it is. And Lord, just for those of us, myself included as much as anyone else, that uh, your Holy Spirit is playing on our conscience of, oh, hey, I enjoy watching that movie or that show. Or, oh, I know it's not really honouring to you, but hey, like, God, I enjoy it, so I just want to keep doing it. Lord, may, may we not keep numbing our conscience to that. May we take you and your words seriously that we are called to live in such a way where every aspect of our lives through words, through deeds, through the media we consume, through how we talk, through how we dress, through the things we buy with our money. Lord, we are called to live with every aspect of our life in a way that honours and glorifies you. May we go into this week happy to do that, not out of obligation, but out of love, love for you first and foremostly, and love for our brothers and sisters that are around us. May we not build up our egos and our heads with our rights and freedoms and hold tightly to that. May instead we let that go and instead live in the midst of love, which builds up the people of God around us. Lord, thank you for the freedom you have blessed us with. May we use it how you intended us to. in a very sensible way. Amen. Thank you, Paul. We're going to finish the service with a song.